In December 1855, David Livingstone arrived in England after an extraordinary series of travels in southern Africa. When he stepped off the boat in Dover, very few beyond the rather solemn Royal Geographical Society knew anything at all about David Livingstone. But Sir Roderick Murchison, who was the RGS's presiding genius, realised that Livingstone's arrival presented him with a perfect opportunity for fundraising publicity. Well, Murchison was a committee man with an enormous address book, and Livingstone, much to everyone's surprise, including his own, turned out to be a wildly popular speaker. Murchison quickly fixed him up also with a book contract with the RGS's publisher. Within days of coming ashore, Livingston found himself being carried along by Murchison's tentacular publicity machine. It turned him into a celebrity. Famous explorers, we discover, are partly made by their own extraordinary fortitude, of course, but they are also created by the times in which they live and by circumstances they barely understand and certainly don't control. And of course it means that their success may not last. Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk about historical stories everyone knows. We want to try out some new ideas. I'm Penelope Middlebow. And I'm John Rosebank. And we're revisiting stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. Livingston's book, Missionary Travels, his account of his exploration so far, was published in November 1857. Now, Livingston wasn't an accomplished writer, but he turned out to be strangely persuasive. The RGS publisher, John Murray, allocated an editor to spruce up the prose, but Livingston objected strongly to the result. He wanted to keep his own simple, even slightly plodding style, which he described as manly and forcible. <laughs> and it was... Murray conceded, and Livingstone was proved right. The reviewers loved what one called Livingstone's unassuming prose. The man seemed, well, profoundly credible. His attraction for the general public wasn't so much what he may or may not have achieved, it was his rugged, long-suffering determination and heart. Readers found Livingstone, as historian Andrew Roberts has commented, the best of company. Well, the most famous passage is when Livingston is attacked by the lion. He's gone out to hunt it because it was attacking the local people's cattle. I love this bit because I was born in Kenya and on several occasions in the 1950s and 60s, my father had to do exactly that, go out and kill a lion that was attacking the local people's cattle. The difference was that Livingston's attack went badly wrong. Livingston had managed to hit the lion with a couple of bullets but then, as he explains, and um, you must imagine the thick West Scots accent. I saw the lion's tail erected in anger behind the bush and turning to the people, I said, stop a little till I load again. When in the act of ramming down the bullets, I heard a shout starting and looking half round. I saw the lion just in the act of springing upon me. Well, I was upon a little height and he caught my shoulder as he sprang and we both came to the ground below together, growling horribly close to my ear. He shook me as a terrier dog does a rat. The shock produced a stupor similar to that which seems to be felt by a mouse after the first shake of the cat. It caused a sort of dreaminess in which there was no sense of pain nor feeling of terror, though quite conscious of all that was happening. 
It was like what patients partially under the influence of chloroform describe, who see all the operation but feel not the knife. This peculiar state is probably produced in all animals killed by the carnivores, and if so, it's a merciful provision by our benevolent creator for lessening the pain of death. Well, the lion leaves Livingston, but only to attack one of the Africans who's come to his aid, who's aiming a gun at him. He bites this guy on the thigh, and then another man throws a spear, and the lion attacks him. It's now badly wounded three men. But before it could finish any of them, as Livingston says, the bullets he had received took effect, and he fell down dead. Livingston then adds, with the same very personal mix of faraway adventure and science... I had on a tartan jacket on the occasion, and I believe that it wiped off all the virus from the teeth that pierced the flesh, for my two companions in this affray have both suffered from the peculiar pains that follow a lion attack, while I have escaped with only the inconvenience of a false joint in my limb. The man whose shoulder was wounded showed me his wound actually burst forth afresh on the same month of the following year. Hmm. This curious point deserves the attention of inquirers. That's Livingston, who's always curious. What he doesn't reveal is that resetting his own broken arm, which he dismisses as an inconvenience, had been absolute agony and that his arm never worked properly again. The first edition of his book, Missionary Travels, 12,000 copies, was sold out before it had even been printed, nearly ten times what Sir Roderick Murchison's own recent tome on geology had sold. Reviewers described Livingston's book in a phrase that perhaps bears a number of meanings as the work of the age. By February 1858, 30,000 copies had been sold at a guinea apiece. The Morning Post reported a scene in which Murchison is proudly telling an audience that, quote, a few months ago, it would have been necessary for him to have entered into some explanation as to what Livingston was, what he'd done, what sort of man he was, and what he had accomplished. Yeah, yeah. But now the 30,000 volumes of Livingston's travels had made the world familiar with the subject, and such an explanation was therefore uncalled for. Hurrah! Later, another 10,000 copies would be sold of a cheaper, abridged, popular edition. Altogether, missionary travels would eventually sell 70,000 copies and make the author £9,000, an enormous sum for the time. Well, Livingston had dedicated the book to Murchison, and no wonder the man had masterminded a bestseller. Now Livingston's rather mournful face started turning up on boxes of matches, umbrella handles and all kinds of other merchandise. As we've already seen, he may not have understood the Africans as well as he believed and claimed in his book, but nobody in England could possibly know that. His schemes for new commercial routes to displace the evil slave trade were hardly new, but they sounded reasonable enough to appeal for government backing. Anyway, none of that was what really mattered. Whether his geographical observations were correct, that in particular the Zambezi River offered a navigable waterway to fertile plains in the heart of Africa, only further exploration would show. And further exploration was exactly what his backers, and above all, Murchison and the Royal Geographical Society, were in the business of trying to make happen. The Foreign Secretary, Lord Clarendon, now, finally, allowed Murchison to persuade him to appoint Livingston as a British consul. 
nominally based in Kelemani on the African East Coast, but in practice working with Dr Livingstone's Kololo and other Central African peoples. It would provide the doctor a steady £500 a year salary. A public appeal launched by Murchison in January 1857, just weeks after Livingstone had arrived in Britain, began to bring in significant public funds for a new expedition. And Murchison began planning and recruiting in consultation with the explorer himself. The expedition was set off from the mouth of the Zambezi and travel inland by water. They would even take a paddle steamer. In parts, of course, to be assembled on site. So that they could steam up the Zambezi and explore the waiting lakes and perhaps even make a start on the new commercial trade. In fact, once Murchison had managed to persuade the government also to come in, Livingston had £30,000 to spend. Well, the Bank of England's inflation calculator puts that at £2.6 million pounds in today's money. In fact, some historians would give a much higher figure. It was certainly enough for anything Livingston wanted, and such was his new celebrity that he could take with him whoever he chose. On the 13th of February 1858, Murchison organised what he called the Livingston Festival. It was an enormous farewell banquet at the Freemasons Tavern in London. 250 tickets were advertised, but more than twice that number applied. In the end, 350 gentlemen were packed into the tavern's largest hall, and the papers reported, quotes, the gallery was densely filled with ladies. Why were they separated? As uh, Victorians. Murchison presided with the Duke of Argyle, and the guests included the Duke of Wellington, Earl Grey, and many more for Murchison's enormous and very smart network of contacts. A huge map of Africa showed Livingston's discoveries to date, and during the evening a new bust of the man himself was unveiled, as Murchison gleefully exclaimed, no room in London could now hold all the people who wanted to see him. Murchison gave a speech praising Livingston's command of the science of making astronomical observations. But he went on to say that an even greater achievement had been Livingston's ability to win the trust of the Africans through his loyalty to them. It was a sign that Livingston's gentle, unusual, open-minded approach had at least impressed London society. When Murchison described Mrs Livingston's courage in bringing up their five children in Africa and mentioned that she would be joining the new expedition, there was, quote, loud and rapturous cheering. Drawing on Livingston's own promises of what could be achieved, Murchison looked forward to an expedition that would discover copper and gold and lay the groundwork for growing indigo, cotton and other crops. He revealed that the Queen, Victoria herself, had granted Livingston a private audience earlier that day and wished him Godspeed. Well, the assembled company again burst into loud cheers. Livingston modestly replied, reminding his audience of what his prime purpose really was, that if he did nothing but help end slavery, then the expedition would be a success. Dr Livingston's Zambezi expedition set off from Liverpool, at a quarter past one on Wednesday the 10th of March 1858 aboard the colonial office steamer Pearl. There was no fanfare and just a few waving well-wishers. And the expedition would be a complete disaster <laughs> in almost every possible respect. <laughs> so sad. <laughs> Livingston's expedition to open a trade route into the African interior up the Zambezi River set off from Liverpool in March 1858. 
It was fantastically well-funded and Livingston was leading his own hand-picked team. Well, you should read historian Lawrence Stritzat's balanced and properly researched account written in 2010. It's a compendium of miscalculation, mismanagement and failure. Within days of arriving off the mouth of the Zambezi, it was clear that Livingston had catastrophically exaggerated the river's potential. It was shallow and shifting and useless for navigating in anything except canoes. So no good for the paddle steamer. Worse, 300 miles inland in the section that Livingston had not reconnoitred on his earlier trip, they discovered that the river cascaded through a long ravine and down a deadly succession of rapids while you couldn't even get up in a canoe, let alone a paddle steamer. Well, Livingston had tried to calculate the drop of the river in its course and to work out whether there would be anything on this scale and the part he hadn't seen for himself. But it now turned out that he got his arithmetic very badly wrong. The Keprabasa Gorge, which is now a vast reservoir known as Kohora Bassa, once and for all destroyed all hope of river trade to the interior. Livingston and his expedition tried other rivers to take them inland, but none were any better. Within months, Livingston's grand plan for commerce with the interior had completely collapsed. And then things got worse. Livingston had proposed to establish two missions in the African interior, although he had the intention of leading neither. He'd leaned on his former employers, the London Missionary Society, the LMS, to send a mission to the Kalola people who'd helped him so much. After all, he pointed out the LMS had spent the previous two and a half years busily raising money using his name, so it was the least they could do. The LMS missionaries now set off from Cape Town and did indeed reach the village of King Sekaletu, the Kalola people, on the Barotsi Plains in what's now Zambia. It had been Livingston's home for months and it was this King Sekaletu who'd provided him with the men and material to make his two astonishing journeys to the coasts west and east. But the LMS missionaries all quickly died of fever. It turned out that Livingston had seriously misled everyone about how healthy the interior was. Well, he'd been in Africa for over a decade before reaching the Kololo, and he personally had the constitution of an ox. Stronger than an ox. But ordinary mortal human beings, fresh from Victorian Britain, had no protection at all against Africa's cocktail of fevers. Livingston claimed to have produced a complete cure for malaria... He'd been so confident in it that the British government had distributed it around the Royal Navy. But as the new missionaries died one after another, it became horribly clear that Livingston's cure did not work. Actually, even so, his quinine recipe, which he'd written out on the 26th of November 1860, went on being manufactured in tablet form by the chemist's Burroughs Welcome until the 1920s. They were called Livingston's Rousers, a name given to his recipe by those who had apparently seen it work. So there you are, never trust Big Pharma. Actually, I always found a gin and tonic was an effective way to take quinine. The second mission was sent out by a new organisation that Livingston had partly inspired. During his two and a half years in England, the Reverend Doctor had given what is now a celebrated lecture at Cambridge. It had been one of the factors that had led to the establishment of this new organisation, the university's mission to Central Africa, with backers in Cambridge, Oxford and eventually Durham and Dublin. 
Well, its first mission left in 1861 to join Livingston's expedition along the Zambezi. Well, the young men who joined had perhaps been inspired by Livingston's book, Missionary Travels, or maybe they'd even heard him lecture. But the organisation was also the product of a completely new and unconnected enthusiasm for missionary work among the high church Anglo-Catholics who'd been flourishing in the universities over the previous 20 years. Being, unlike Livingston, high church Anglicans, they'd even sent a young Anglican bishop, Charles Mackenzie, aged just 36, to lead the mission. Of course, we would need a bishop. But since it had now proved impossible to travel up the Zambezi, Livingston had identified a new site for his mission along a different river, the Shira, at a place called Magomero in what is now Malawi. Actually, the name Magomero is close to my heart since the first time I got to know the Livingston story, indeed the first time I got to know Africa, was making a film for BBC Two at Magomero, which later became a plantation owned by Livingston's daughter Agnes. Livingston had written to London that the new place was high and fertile, with plenty of water, ideal for the growing of cotton. And you, well, you have to say that it's now a really beautiful place, in what's a very beautiful country, with the loveliest of people. But in 1861, Magomero was an utterly disastrous place for a mission. Read Landeg White's heartfelt account of the village, which was the inspiration for my film. The new mission included three laymen with some rudimentary instruction in agriculture. It was meant to become a self-sustaining little village. There was even eventually supposed to be a doctor, a shoemaker and a printer. But this was no more the healthy highlands that Livingston had promised than the lands of the Kololo had been. To start with, there was not, as Livingston had promised, an easy route to the coast for supplies. That was actually almost a thousand kilometres to the east coast. A thousand kilometres. Well, the missionaries quickly began to suffer not only disease, but also hunger. Worse, as we've seen in our previous discussions, for some years now, this part of Africa had been descending into violence and trust in white men had quite naturally been collapsing. Perhaps... Had the publisher of Livingston's book not insisted that he drop all his sections on British misrule in Southern Africa, all this political situation might have been clearer to the new missionary society. But neither in the finished book nor anywhere else had Livingston apparently given anyone the full picture. No sooner had Livingston personally led the missionaries into the Shearer Highlands than they quickly found themselves forcibly rescuing a party of 84 slaves. Well, Bishop Mackenzie doubted whether using force had been wise. He was right. Another firefight quickly followed. The people at Magomero welcomed the missionaries to stay, but in reality, they found themselves committed to defending the villagers in a bitter local feud, which the missionaries completely lacked the local knowledge to deal with. The bishop ended up attacking slave traders with his bishop's crozier in one hand and a gun in the other, <laughs> like some kind of medieval pope. Even Livingston, who spent just a few days with them at Magomero, organising its defence as a stockaded fortress, found himself shooting at the local Africans. None of which he'd intended or promised. It was clear that Livingston's account of the area as a place to settle had once again been hopelessly over-optimistic. One young missionary, James Stewart, who had travelled up to Magomero, but soon sensibly decided to leave, recalled going down to the Zambezi on his way home and flinging his copy of Livingston's book, Missionary Travels, into the river. He had, he could now see, been badly misled by the man who had first inspired him to be a missionary. 
Just because Livingstone could individually thread his way very slowly and often very painfully through all the difficulties of local warfare and disease, Livingstone had jumped to the conclusion that it would be possible to establish English civilization and commerce. It was not so much that what he'd written in his book Missionary Travels was completely untrue, it was that he had omitted to mention so much that was insurmountably difficult, or at any rate impossible for anyone less indestructible than Livingstone. The mission at Magomero lasted just two years. By the end, out of the missionaries who'd set off with Livingston, the bishop and three others were dead, along with their families. My God. There had been next to no meaningful rapprochement with the local peoples, hardly any missionary work, and no progress at all on establishing a plantation. A new bishop, William Tozer, arrived to take charge and promptly, sensibly, decided that the Shearer Highlands were much too far from the sea to be realistically supplied. So he tried another area of high ground that Livingston had recommended. It was, wrote one of the missionaries, paradise in comparison with Magamaro. But the missionaries soon found that their new home was too poor, too ravaged by the slavers, too humid and yet ironically too short of water to sustain a mission. The Europeans quickly became too ill to function. It was, wrote Bishop Tozer, a good specimen of the way in which Livingston leaps to any conclusion he may wish to see adopted. Tozer eventually moved the operation to Zanzibar on the coast. I believe, he said, Livingston to be a good man, but to use the phrase of one of our party, a very dangerous one. And while all this was going on, Livingston was proving himself to be a completely disastrous manager, at least of the British men in his team. Livingston's expedition to the Zambezi, which had set off in March 1858, turned out to be an unmitigated disaster. The Zambezi was not navigable, and nor were any of the other rivers they'd tried. The missions they established quickly collapsed as the missionaries died of fever or became embroiled in local wars. And Livingston himself turned out to be as bad at understanding the Europeans under his command as he was good at getting on with Africans. Well, given Livingston's long record of falling out with virtually every colleague he'd ever had, it wasn't surprising. But he also proved to be a poor judge of character. His hand-picked expedition members turned out to be bad-tempered and feckless, especially his own brother, Charles Livingston. One by one, they were dismissed or quit. Rather awkwardly, his wife, Mary, became pregnant on the trip out and had to leave her husband immediately upon arriving in Africa to go and stay with her missionary parents and have her baby. She then went back to England with the baby and came out again in January 1862 without any of her six surviving children. Now, opinions differ about Mary Livingston. There are those who say she was just a brawling drunk. Others point to her command of several African languages and her courageous commitment to working alongside her husband. Within weeks of reaching Africa again, however, Mary fell ill with malaria. And in spite of her husband's much-vaunted fever remedies, he couldn't save her. She died at the age of 41. Well, it was another catastrophe for the expedition. By now, Livingston was going round as one Portuguese settler on the coast notice, quotes, like a cat with his tail between his legs. 
John Kirk, who was a Scottish doctor and perhaps Livingston's best, most tolerant and patient friend on the expedition, wrote in 1862, quotes, I can come to no other conclusion than that Dr Livingston is out of his mind and a most unsafe leader. By now, news of these disasters was filtering back to Britain. On the 20th of January 1863, the Times reprinted an article from a highbrow Sunday paper, Examiner. It was a sustained and outspoken assault on Livingston and his entire Zambezi expedition. Quotes, we were promised cotton, sugar and indigo. And of course, we get none. We were promised trade and there is no trade. We were promised converts, the gospel, and not one has been made. We were told the climate was salubrious and a bishop and some of his best missionaries with their wives and children have perished in the malarious swamps of the Zambezi. In a word, the thousands subscribed by the universities and the thousands contributed by the government have been productive only of the most fatal results. Dr Livingston is unquestionably a traveller of talents, enterprise and excellent constitution, but it is now plain enough that his zeal and imagination must surpass his judgment. And while you have to say that's a pretty accurate and measured summary of the disaster Livingston had created around himself. In fact, we should also add that Livingston's own stated overriding objective to end the slave trade was not a single step closer to being achieved than when he'd set out. Well, in July 1863, the boat that had brought the new bishop out to the Zambezi had also brought an official government letter terminating Livingston's expedition, ordering him and his remaining explorers back to Britain. Historian Lawrence Dritzitz argues that the Zambezi expedition hadn't been a complete write-off. It had, after all, always been a government expedition, and its official instructions, largely dictated in fact by Sir Roderick Murchison, had been much more about the science it was supposed to do than about Livingston's Christianity, civilization, or commerce. <laughs> Makes clear that Murchison had, after all, quietly been using Livingston for his own largely scientific ends. In the event, the expedition members had actually, sometimes in the teeth of obstruction from Livingston himself, managed to collect an enormous number of scientific specimens. As they were slowly and quietly analysed over the next years, they would become an invaluable resource in understanding this part of Africa. Some are still being studied. The expedition had also accumulated a good deal of new and accurate geographical information. But all this was yet to become obvious and was never of any interest to the general public. For all that anyone could tell, by 1864, Livingston's Zambezi expedition had been a total and eye-wateringly expensive write-off and also enormously wasteful in human lives. Livingston finally got back to Britain on Saturday, the 23rd of July, 1864. He completed, in fact, the final stage from Marseille to London by train, You'd expect him now just to, well, seek out his children who'd been living in poverty and without a parent and, well, perhaps, well, to retire quietly with them, maybe as a preacher in some little Scottish chapel. Or, more likely, he would return with them to Africa as a missionary in a quiet station, probably with a new wife if he could find one, and if he could sign up with some missionary society willing, after everything that had happened, to take him on. And that would have been the end of the Livingston story. He would by now have been long forgotten. But instead, a strange and surprising thing occurred. No sooner had Livingston stepped onto the platform in London, in fact that same Saturday evening, than he was met by Sir Roderick Murchison himself, 
and Sir Roderick was whisking him along to socialise at a smart soiree with the Prime Minister and others of his wealthy contacts. A few days later, Murchison had him dining with government ministers at the Mansion House. The new Foreign Secretary, Earl Russell, interviewed him and was, Livingston reported, very cold in his manner. What would he have expected? (laughs) (laughs) Not only had enormous sums of government money been wasted and some of the best missionaries lost, but relations with the Portuguese, England's oldest ally, had been strained by the conflicts Livingston's men had stirred up with the local slave traders. But Russell's voice would soon be drowned out by others of Murchison's smart address book set. For all the disasters that had occurred and the recent criticism in the posh papers, Livingston was somehow still being welcomed as a hero. In fact, the well-documented setbacks and obstacles just seemed to boost his image as a survivor against the odds. It's a, well, it's a theme you come across time and again with other celebrity explorers. doesn't matter what they achieved. <laughs> what mattered was being manly in the face of suffering. Of course, that is what matters. It was, of course, in Sir Roderick Murchison's interest to cover up what had happened and repair Livingston's aura as quickly as possible. After all, the doctor was too good an asset to lose. And Murchison's own reputation had perhaps become rather inextricably linked with Livingston's. But something much bigger was also at play here. Despite the disaster of his Zambezi expedition, Livingston was welcomed back to Britain in July 1864 as a hero. Partly, we may suspect, that that was because his well-connected patron, the geographer Sir Roderick Murchison, was anxious to repair his own reputation. Despite the catastrophic collapse of his most recent expedition, Livingston would be, of course, full of good yarns, which he would tell in his homely, self-deprecating, manly way. And he would continue to charm London's smart society and the people who mattered and who would give the RGS some money. But Livingston had another stroke of luck. Since the spring of 1858, when he'd set off on his ill-starred Zambezi expedition, a significant change had been creeping over the British press, the newspapers. It was yet another of the deep processes over which Livingston had no control, but on top of which he floated to fame. In 1853, the government had removed the excise tax on newspaper advertisements. Two years later, 1855, it had removed the penny stamp duty that had been payable on every copy of each newspaper. Well, the result had been the mushrooming of cheap penny and halfpenny daily papers, notably the Daily Telegraph and the Morning Star. It's a story you can follow in Joel Weiner's scholarly, The Americanisation of the British Press. Well, the new papers were easy to read, like the ones we have today, with plenty of engraved pictures. The cheap penny Daily Telegraph made its name with gossipy commentaries, hurriedly churned out by a journalist called George Sala, with, Weena says, the assistance of a bottle of whisky. Sala would in fact go on to be a pornographic novelist. Well, the Daily Telegraph made a good deal of its money from running smutty personal ads, which the other papers refused to carry. Readers of the Telegraph note. Disgraceful. Altogether more respectable was the Morning Star. <laughs> Not in fact the later communist paper, but a, ah. radical, but a radical non-conformist hate me daily. 
Livingston was particularly interesting to the star because it shared his determination to put a stop to enslavement. But the mainstay of all these cheap new dailies was human interest stories. No longer were dry communications to the London Times copied out wholesale and the other papers. Now a whole breed of journalists was on the lookout for vivid personal tales to catch their readers' eyes. And tales about the colourful Reverend Dr Livingston were just perfect for the job. In a piece widely reprinted in other papers, the star greeted the newly returned Livingston as, quotes, a gallant and successful explorer. Successful? Well, the star was philosophical about Livingston's recent setbacks. Quotes, if much has been lost, much also has been gained. Not the least of which is a great example of noble perseverance and heroic self-sacrifice. This is the theme it keeps coming back to. It put the failure of the expedition down to the impossible difficulties of Africa, but also to the Portuguese, who were the ones keeping the slave trade going. God, it's a terrible Europeans. Is the, it's all their <laughs> the fault. <story. laughs> Murchison informed the still po-faced times that the explorer was still determined to end the slave trade. Livingston, he reported, was saying that he would have to be leaving for Africa within four months. Well, the Morning Star argued that Livingston would be wasting his time and pressed the government to find him something else for him to do, to, quote, mark their sense of his pre-eminent public services and at the same time employ his great energy in some much more practical and useful enterprise. Well, the piece could almost have been written by Murchison himself. Probably was. After all, well, it probably was. After all, he wouldn't want Livingston sailing away again until he, Murchison, had been able to scrape in a bit more cash for his own schemes. Well, in the event, Livingston didn't depart for Africa in 1864. Instead, Murchison got him to write a new book and, of course, to get back out on the lecture circuit. The book emerged the next year and attracted sharp criticism. William Cooley, who was an RGS geographer, in fact, he'd been trying to organise a cross-Africa expedition himself long before Livingston, though he'd never travelled anywhere himself, wrote in 1865 that Livingston's fame had prevented proper scrutiny before his Zambezi adventure. His review of the new book was entitled Dr Livingston's Errors. Well, what it shows is that however many entertaining tales the Reverend Doctor might be telling, the geographical cognoscenti were becoming seriously doubtful about the competence of Murchison's protégé. What mattered to them had not been Livingston's colourful stories, but the scientific and geographical data he had brought back. What the Zambezi fiasco had shown was that much of it had been fatally inaccurate. Livingston's popular image continued to hold up, helped by the cheap dailies and Murchison's relentless networking. Nobody could doubt that the Doctor was a man of heroic fortitude and personal integrity. However, it was all very well for the people who liked to read the cheap dailies, but for the people who had money, it was really only sufficient to attract just a slow trickle of funds for another RGS trip to Africa. But Livingston was helped by a stroke of rather black good luck. There had been a long-running controversy over the source of the River Nile, whether it flowed from Lake Tanganyika, as the African explorer Richard Burton and also Livingston himself believed, or from Lake Victoria, which another explorer, John Speak, had argued, and is in fact correct. But in September 1864, Speak had accidentally shot himself while he was out hunting and had died. It was just a few days before he was due to share a platform on the Nile question with Burton and Livingston. Well, understandably, there were now sentimental voices in favour of trying to resolve the controversy that had done most to make Speak's name 
By this time, Burton was committed to exploration in South America, so Livingston, the only other publicly known explorer who was familiar with this territory, would just have to do. Livingston himself was still much more interested in trying to end the slave trade, but there was no money for an expedition to do that, and everyone could now see that his grand plan for commercial trade to the African interior was a non-starter. Finding the source of the Nile, however, was surely something he could do without causing the death of any more missionaries or wasting too much government money. Well, so in August 1866, Livingston left Britain in command of another expedition to South Africa. He had six surviving children, the youngest just eight, who'd been living in Peenury in Scotland. Closest they'd had to a parent since the death of their mother Mary in 1862 had been the eldest girl, Agnes, who was then only 15. But Livingston, perhaps aware that his credit was badly waning in London's smart society, apparently could not wait to get away and leave his children behind. This time, the government's contribution was just £500. The RGS put up the same, and the other half of the extremely meagre 2000 budget... What was it? Zambezi one? 30000 30, yeah. The other half of this £2,000 was provided by a wealthy Scottish friend of Livingston's, James Young, who in fact made all his money by making... Paraffin. Everyone had learned the lesson of the Zambezi trip. Livingston could not be trusted to run a team of Europeans. So he was sent to recruit his helpers from India and Africa. Anyway, he finally landed in Zanzibar and set off with a caravan of 60 men. But even this was beyond him. He never inspired any loyalty in his new team. They wandered apparently aimlessly, back into the part of present-day Malawi that he knew already, probably because he knew that the slave traders were active there. Within months, deserters were reappearing back in Zanzibar, reporting that Livingston and the rest of his expedition to discover the source of the Nile had all been killed. Once again, it seemed that an expedition led by the Reverend Doctor had collapsed into catastrophe. But this time, Livingston was saved in the most unimaginably unlikely way. Again? As we shall see next time at the History Cafe. It's like he's got seven lives. There are 70 evergreen podcasts now at the History Cafe and reading lists for every one of them. You can find them on our website, historycafe.org, and you can also sign up for a weekly newsletter. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and many other platforms. Just look out for History Cafe Podcasts with John and Penelope. And beware of imitations. Follow our regular blog at History Cafe Pod and spread the word. Spread the word.